Hi and welcome to F World The Fragility podcast. Together with guests from around the globe, we explore how fragility manifests across economics, politics, security, culture, development and the environment and how we together can build a more resilient future. We are your hosts. I'm Johan Bjergman Bergman and with me I have Paul Biska and Michaela Karste. And today we're speaking with Cohen Davidson. Cohen's career has taken him to the highest levels of both bilateral and multilateral diplomacy as a special envoy of the Dutch government, a deputy special representative of the UN Secretary General, and most recently as executive director of the World Bank Group. Cohen started his career in the Dutch Foreign Service based in New Delhi, India, but moved to the World Bank as a senior advisor to the board of executive directors. After four years in Washington, D.C., he became a minister plenipotentiary at the permanent mission of the Netherlands to the United Nations. In 2006, he was appointed as research director for the UN Secretary General's high-level panel on UN system-wide coherence. One of the key recommendations of the panel was that the UN system should deliver as one at a country level, with one leader, one program, one budget, and where appropriate, one office what is now known as the Deliver as One approach. Subsequently, Cohen was appointed Director of Peacebuilding and Stabilization with the Dutch Foreign Ministry and became the Dutch Special Envoy for Sudan, facilitating the Sudan Comprehensive Peace Agreement, which ended the Second Sudanese Civil War and led to independence for South Sudan. Cohen was also instrumental in the creation of the first Dutch strategy for security and development in fragile states in 2008. He then moved on to become the Director of Multilateral Institutions and Human Rights in the Dutch Foreign Ministry, as well as the Dutch Special Envoy to the Sustainable Development Goals Global Consultations. In 2015, Cohn was appointed by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon as his Deputy Special Representative in the Multilateral Integrated Stabilization Mission MINUSMA in Bamako, Mali. He holds a degree in international relations and political science from Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and we're very thrilled to have him with us today. Welcome to F-World, Cohen. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Wonderful. So it is obvious to anyone uh, that yours is an incredibly distinguished career with consecutive appointments at the very highest levels of, of diplomacy. But here at F-World, we really want to dive a little bit deeper uh, behind the, t- the titles and roles to understand what drives our guests. So, Cohen, would you care to share with us some of your formative experiences and people and places and ideas that have shaped your life and career? Well, thank you. I, I think the major motivation behind uh, that sort of connects the points uh, that you uh, mentioned is uh, leave no one behind. Basic solidarity, basic human solidarity is incredibly important. And part of that is basically looking at countries in conflict where people are, of course, very vulnerable. If uh, as a world community, we can't take care of the most vulnerable, then uh, we're not being the humanity that we should be. So I think that's been an incredibly important motivation for me, uh, uh, lifting our boats, uh, being, uh, yeah, be, being respectful to everyone, giving everybody an opportunity. I think that's, that's incredibly important. And in FCV situations, it's about preventing lost generations. I think it's clear that the sustainable development goals that we all want to achieve by 2030 will be uh, uh, achieved last in conflict-affected countries. And that's why we really need to work hard on them. 
And I think at several stages in my uh, career, uh, I've been inspired by other people working on this. Uh, and I find your podcast very inspiring. I've been inspired by uh, the, the books of the likes of, uh, of Paul Collier, The Bottom Billion, which was very important. Uh, the World Development Report of the World Bank from 2011 by Sarah Cliff and Nigel Roberts. Um, so I think that that's been very inspiring. But the most inspiring thing to me has been the people that I've met in, in difficult situations, whether it is in Sudan, in Mali, in DRC or Afghanistan. Uh, those are uh, yeah, the stories they tell, the resilience they show, uh, their wishes and their needs. I think are are part of the inspiration why I work so much on this agenda. That's uh, that that's incredible. And some of those those reports that you mentioned and and those works are absolutely seminal within this space. Um, what made you kind of initiate your career within the international space? Uh, if we go back even further, what what made you um, kind of apply for that job to go to New Delhi, India, as part of the Dutch Foreign Service? Uh, really uh, from from that from that beginning yeah i think it's uh to me it's it's uh, it's always been clear that i wanted to work internationally um and uh, the, again the the inspiration of 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 solidarity among nations among peoples is very important to me uh, part of my family uh, grew up in other parts of the world uh and so uh, my grandfather was a, was a teacher uh, who taught indonesian children in in the uh, in, in the colonial days, so so there's also that experience. Um, so so building on that, there always was the expectation that I would do something in this field, and I'm I'm really happy that thanks to uh, thanks to my generous employers, I've been able to do that. Yeah, that that's wonderful. And so, um, how does it come when? So so you you talk about solidarity, and you talk about this will to explore, kind of working uh, across the world, but you kind of went towards the most challenging places. You know, a lot of people uh, might have gone to Indonesia or to, uh, to, to, to China um, to work on these development and solidarity questions, but you uh, kind of veered towards the, the fragility, conflict and violence context. What, what was it that pulled you in to those most challenging uh, of contexts? Well, I think basically we have to assume that conflicts can be resolved and conflicts can be prevented. The Secretary General, who was just re-elected of the UN, uh, is, is stressing very much for a second term prevention. And I think he's absolutely right in choosing that as a core uh, topic. And so uh, we need to focus on this because um, it, it is a challenge we cannot refuse because of the human cost involved, but also the cost to the international community. If you now look, when I was in Mali, uh, we lost over 200 blue helmets. Uh, the peacekeeping operation cost a uh, billion dollars a year. Those are resources that uh, in better times could be spent on education, on health, on empowering women, empowering youth. So it's incredibly important that, uh, that we work on these conflicts and that we don't forget them. Uh, also because, um, I mean, uh, one of the, you mentioned that I worked on Sudan. Sudan at the moment has seven neighboring countries. If Sudan is not stabilized, then a whole region could destabilize. If you look at uh, the conflict in Syria that you worked on, um, look at how it has destabilized uh, and, and put an enormous burden on Lebanon and Jordan. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's an agenda that we cannot ignore. 
uh, an agenda that's going to be made far worse by climate change, by population growth. Um, so we have to work very hard because if we don't do it now, the cost in the future will be even higher. So you were part of uh, creating the first security and, and kind of development strategy for fragile states for, for the Dutch government. And I'm guessing a few of these reasons that you just mentioned were at the center of that, you know, conflict contagion, um, alternative use of resources, etc. Um, but but what was the impetus for a country like like Holland, and you know, could have been the same for for my native Sweden, to really focus in on those uh, on those contexts as a bilateral donor um, that is that is you know, somewhat distance from a lot of these contexts geographically? I think it's because we were having the feeling that we were missing uh, the bottom billion in terms of Paul Collier. So we had the feeling we're working on development, but we're not really working on uh, the people who are the poorest and the most vulnerable. We were basically walking, uh, walking away from dealing uh, with uh, conflict-affected countries because we thought this was basically something for humanitarian assistance. And uh, in, in that context, I think we were missing opportunities to basically find uh, uh, ways of, of fostering development even there. And that means that we, we needed to invest more in listening to people and how we could support them in restoring the social contract. It meant that we couldn't ignore the government, but that we had to work with them and see how they could uh, construct themselves, enhance their capacity, be a, a state that, that serves the people. It meant that we couldn't ignore the fact that the security sector and needs to be linked to justice, but it needs to be there. It, it's not something you can do without in a conflict-affected country. Um, and, and the fact that we basically need to be inclusive. And the, the beauty of... Um, of recent developments has been basically that also the World Bank has started to recognize that, that if, if there's a bridge towards the humanitarian side of international assistance, it's basically that we want to prevent institutions from collapsing and we want to prevent lost generations. And, and that means that you can't just uh, give out humanitarian assistance. You have to think about how will this be sustainable? How will it be durable? What can we do to to basically uh, start rebuilding a society or building a society even? Um, Johan, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump in because what you just said triggered so many thoughts simultaneously. Um, I'm going to start two steps back from the solidarity. Having been born in Romania, seeing what um, it did for my country at that moment to be embraced in, by the West, to be helped, just like the entire Eastern Europe was, that, that transition could have gone very differently. We, it was not, there was no guarantee in 1989, 1990, that all of the countries of Eastern Europe would be where they are today, with few exceptions, of course. Um, so I really appreciated hearing um, sort of your perspective on solidarity. And um, that sort of took me to the next, the next thought, as we are trying to have solidarity with fragile states, one obstacle that I have seen um, among various international organizations, but even for bilateral donors, and it's just part of the broader conversation, there's so many ways to define fragility. What is a fragile state? How do we look at it? How do we think about it? And um, I actually read the strategy, the 2008 strategy, and it's just as pertinent today as it was in 
2008, and that is 13 years ago. So um, tell us a little bit, how was it developed? How did you think you and the team and uh, the, the larger ministry team think about strategy? How do you go about sort of, on one hand, making sure you're narrowing down to the things you can actually do and deliver because you can't stretch yourself too thin, but at the same time have a strategy that's meaningful? No, I think that's a, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, my sense is basically um, that we focused on, uh, on the areas of, of politics, fostering political solution. We focused on the areas of, of security, uh, basically creating uh, support for human security, a civilian-led security sector that is there for the people and not against them. And we focused also on, uh, on justice and on, on peace dividend. Um, and my sense is that um, at the core of, uh, of, of things were uh, weak, uh, weak state institutions that often uh, had, a, had a center periphery problem. The periphery was not included in what the state was doing. Uh, secondly, a lack of inclusion, a lack of social contracts, ignoring certain communities, also ignoring women and youth. Um, so I think those are very important issues. And of course, also a lack of opportunity, a lack of economic and social opportunity for certain regions, groups. And I think those were very important elements that we saw. And we basically uh, worked with others because we, we knew that we, uh, we knew something, but we didn't know everything. So we consulted widely. I also became uh, co-chair of the DAC Working Group on, on Fragile States together with uh, Jordan Ryan of, of UNDP at the time. And um, it was very important that we walked uh, this minefield together. Uh, so that means consulting with other donors, consulting with the UN, with the bank at the time, uh, but also with uh, recipient countries. Because I was also involved in a, in a dialogue with a group of countries we call the G7 Plus, um, with, uh, with uh, the, the Distinguished Minister of Finance of East Timor and other ministers involved. So constantly checking with them, is this basically, are we heading in the right direction? Uh, and that led to, uh, in 2011, to uh, the New Deal for Fragile States, which we agreed at the OECD DAC conference in Busan, uh, which emphasized these points. So first of all, don't forget uh, these states, but also uh, focus on certain areas that you, uh, that you risk forgetting. Uh, the, the, the support for state capacity, support for the justice sector, support for the security sector, uh, support for women and youth. I think those are all elements uh, that we wanted to highlight as it's not just the quantity of aid. So we want more aid for fragile states, but we also want uh, a certain focus on the issues, the binding constraints that basically keep these countries uh, stuck in, in conflict and hopefully making a contribution to preventing future conflict. So you've mentioned quite a couple of times now the, the security sector, so I just have to, to ask you some questions about that. The easiest way, uh, by easy I mean simply the easiest way to quantify it or to measure support to the security sector is to do train and equip. Um, it's, it's usually done, as you well know, on a bilateral basis. Um, very easy to keep track of. It's nice to report that you've done X amount of trainings that you've, um, and sometimes it's extremely necessary, especially when the, the operational challenges in the battlefield are quite, quite high. But how do you see the tension between that part of security sector support and then the necessary support and governance? 
which is a long-term um, aspect. It's harder to quantify. Yes, you can set up all the sort of results frameworks in place to, to, to capture that. And I'm especially curious, both in terms of where you started this uh, in 2008 with the strategy you mentioned, but also as an SRSG. I think it's an, it's an essential question. Um, the risk you run, I think there's two elements to, to security sector reform that are incredibly important. Uh, the first one is what you mentioned, training, equipment, etc. But the second element is to basically start off with the vision. Uh, and you need to work on a democratically controlled security sector, because that's the essence. If you don't have that, and within that framework, yes, you can do training and equipment, but you can also do uh, what is very important and what the World Bank helps with at times. You need to look at transparency in terms of the budget. You need to look at transparency in terms of procurement, because basically it's clear that these countries have legitimate security needs, so they need a security budget. But it needs to be well spent. It needs to be well spent so you have effective human security. It needs to be well spent so you don't crowd out the social sectors. So the risk we run with the training and equipment, if it's not uh, preceded by a vision of this is how we see the security sector, this is how we see the division of labor between the armed forces, between the, the gendarmerie, the role of the local police, uh, this is the census we're going to do so that we make sure uh, that the armed forces are inclusive. Um, this is the kind of uh, training we're going to do so uh, they, uh, they know that they're, they're for the people and not against the people. Um, I think that is an essential element and we need to emphasize that uh, very strongly. So would you say then, then um, so this is a personal perspective, uh, which you of course may agree or disagree with, but one thing that I found in my experience working on security sector reform is that often there's a vision for the security sector, but not a vision for security sector financing. And and often um, it's generally the those with the money are the development actors, and they have very, very clear mandate on what they can do, what they cannot do. Those with the expertise on security sector reform are usually international organizations that lack that sort of financial muscle. So how do you balance those things, especially when you were in Mali or in MINUSMA or elsewhere in your career? Have you seen, um, I know of a Dutch program in Burundi that was um, uh, famous for, for the way it, it sort of, um, was, I think, eight years um, long. Is that a very different way of doing it? So do you have any examples of any situations you've encountered where you thought this was done well and why? I think I'm very proud of the program in Burundi because that's exactly what we're talking about, a program where you basically have a long-term commitment and you're not just providing uh, individual pieces of equipment or training, but you have a bigger program, a longer-term program. You're trying to look at capacity building in terms of the budget, etc. And and we need to do more of that. Uh, and it's uh, there is, of course, interesting organizations that are doing it, uh, DCAF and and, and other, uh, other specialized uh, expertise. Uh, but I think it's, it's incredibly important. Uh, this is, of course, a very sensitive topic, but it's very important that we incentivize countries to say, we're going to use the World Bank for that. Uh, and we're going to basically ask them to help us with a public expenditure review that focuses on how can we improve the transparency and the effectiveness of the, of the defense budget. And you're absolutely right that we sometimes forget that. Uh, and that we focus on, on yeah, once again, the training and equipment. Equipment is very welcome uh, in, in, in many places, but uh, it is sort of off budget. And so then the question becomes, what do you do with the maintenance and everything? So it's important to keep that comprehensive uh, view 
uh, and to, to help countries work from the basis of the policy, the vision, and, and like you said, also the budget. <laughs> because the risk we run if we give all these pieces of individual training and all these pieces of individual equipment that we basically think it's all about that. As long as they have the armored personnel carriers, it's going to be okay. And uh, no, it's not. It depends on, that's an instrument, but an instrument for the vision that needs to be clear. So then um, what can we do to better remember this vision or follow up on it? Because um, one another uh, perspective I'd be very curious to to hear what you think about is the fact that our, our own training is in terms of professionals, whether we studied economics or whether we studied security or, or, or whatever it is, really much shapes our perspective of what is important. And that gets reinforced uh, as we grow in, in our careers. So often, the gut reaction from a development, a classical development specialist is security is not for us. It's not you know governance of the security sector. It's sensitive. It's not for us. On the other hand, on the security side, they say... Um, well, um, um, we need, you know, this is important no matter what. We need to have the most spending possible because we defend a country and it's about, it's also a symbol of national pride. So there's a lot of elements about politics, about economics that maybe fall through the cracks, partly because of how the world system is, is set up. Uh, it's the legacy of, you know, post-World War II. Um, how, what do you think can be done about that when we develop as professionals, I guess? Well, I think we need a lot of cross-fertilization. So uh, we need people to have different experiences, and I think you you have some of that. Um, but also, uh, we need to be open to work with others. Uh, and so it's it's a very good thing that the bank, for instance, is open to working now with uh, with the International Committee of the Red Cross in in South Sudan, with uh, UNDP in in Yemen. Um, those are all uh, sorts of cooperation which allow yourself to be um, to be. Uh, to have at your disposal the toolkit of others. And so I think we need to be very open to that and not be very rigid in, uh, in the way we, we do things. Uh, I see that openness uh, uh, more and more. Uh, so I do think there's, uh, there's more scope. Uh, but um, yeah, we can, we can do more in that respect. We need to bring together the perspectives of uh, economics, uh, social science, but also looking at the, at the political and peace side. The whole um, issue about the nexus uh, between uh, humanitarian development and, and peace actors is incredibly important. And sometimes you find that we are creating silos where there are no silos. If you look at uh, some of the nexus partners, UNICEF, for instance, deals with humanitarian assistance, but it also deals with development. So where's the, where's the gap that you need to bridge? But there are other gaps to be bridged. And also there's a case to be made. There's a case to be made towards leaders to say, you know, you have an interest in transparency in terms of expenditure uh, for the security sector. You have an interest to buy helicopters, planes and everything for a reasonable price uh, and, and a price that you, can, uh, that you can be accountable for. So I think that discussion uh, needs, to be, uh, needs to be held. So you mentioned uh, in passing uh, Sudan and South Sudan. So I thought we could d dive in a bit uh, into your experience with the Sudanese peace process. So just as a background, obviously, South Sudan became an independent country in 2011 after um, a, 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 a very, very long civil war or actually two civil wars. Um, and you were uh, part of implementing and overseeing the peace process that that followed that ultimately led to the 2011 um, uh, you know creation of the of the nation of South Sudan. 
Could you share with us a little bit about what was it like to be part of that process of implementing uh, a peace deal that ended two decades of, of civil war and, and created, I think, at least uh, probably the or one of the first countries to be created in, in, the, in the 2000s? Yeah, no, I think um, I think we uh, well. First of all, it's very important to to uh, make clear the main actors in in this were the UN and the, what what is called the Troika, so the US, the UK, and Norway. But uh, we were a part, and I was the part of the follow up committee that uh, oversaw the peace agreement. So we were very much involved, um, and I think we realized we had an uh, we had a big responsibility. We had a big responsibility because basically. We needed to help the parties uh, realize the potential of the peace agreement. There had been such suffering over decades. And finally, uh, we had been able uh, to, to stop the conflict. But the conflict actually was still going on in Darfur in particular. So it was a very difficult situation. Also, there were clearly differences of opinion whether uh, there should be a secession of South Sudan. And we wanted that to be a decision of Sudanese and not something imposed from by the outside world. In the end, a referendum in South Sudan decided overwhelmingly uh, that uh, they wanted a separate state. So it was uh, it was an important uh, part of the history of Sudan. Not easy, and we realized we uh, we had to do a good job in order to basically prevent further suffering. But that also meant that meant that we sometimes had to call out things like the continuing violence in in. Uh, in Darfur, um, I myself I was involved in. Uh, I, I took an initiative to. I hosted two meetings uh, to basically when when uh, to get humanitarian actors to be allowed back into Darfur uh, when the indictments came from the International Criminal Court against uh, the the Sudanese government. Uh, they basically blocked entry and threw out uh, humanitarian assistance. So I worked on getting that back. And also uh, we initiated as the Netherlands uh, arbitration by the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague between the north and south about the Abye uh, 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 border uh, province, basically, dear to both sides, so that we wouldn't have an extra element of conflict. Uh, and that has helped basically uh, uh, at least uh, eliminate violent conflict over that area. So it was important to try and keep uh, the process on track. Um, and yes, in 2011, I was present at the uh, at the creation of South Sudan. And we were, of course, full of hope. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of things happened uh, after that. Uh, and hopefully uh, now uh, there's a new opportunity to uh, to start building uh, the new nation. In, in your view, what were the main challenges in, in that implementation of the peace process? What, what, were the, what were the main issues that you ran up against um, as, as in, in that implementation uh, space? I think the problem at the time was that there was, uh, on the one hand, uh, the need to bring everybody together. Uh, and on the other hand, there were uh, 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 forces pulling uh, things apart. Uh, the, the ongoing violence in Darfur, uh, the, the, the sense in the South, we need to go our own way. Uh, those were important uh, elements we needed to, uh, to take very seriously. And we needed to find peaceful ways of, of making that happen. Because in the end, uh, the separation between North and South could have been very violent from the start. It wasn't. Uh, so I think those were the most important challenges. 
And there in a situation like that, uh, of course, it's up to the local parties in the end, but it's very good to have the UN presence there. And it's very good as, as, as representatives of the countries that have worked on the peace agreement to keep on sending messages, to keep on having the dialogue uh, with the parties, uh, uh, to keep on extending a hand so that, uh, yeah, they, they, they know that the international community is there to help, but also that the international community is watching them, watching them take seriously uh, the implementation of the peace agreement. So I think that was, uh, yeah, the, the contribution uh, we could make to that process. So I have a, a follow-up question to, to, to this, because one of the most valuable things that I think we can uh, tell, uh, we can um, help our listeners and viewers understand is what goes on in these negotiations? How is it like, not so much in terms of content, which are obviously um, things for um, that are sensitive, but you, know, you, you, you get assigned to this team where you, you, you know, someone tells you, you are going to go now and be uh, part of this negotiation. It's your job to help make it happen. Uh, on a day-to-day basis, um, how do you start? Do you get you know, 20 emails in the morning with your briefings? Do you go to different meetings? And then when do you know when or how do you judge the situation where you say, okay, now it's time to ramp up the heat and to say, okay, we know what's happening in Darfur. We know what's happening with your armed group associated with your political party versus the opposite um, perspective in which you could say, well, we know all of that, but it's really important that right now these parties keep talking. So calling them out won't help much. So can you give us a sense of how that was like? Yeah, I think there's, there's uh, many elements at play here. Um, but I think the most important thing is that um, um, the, 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 the beauty of working for a country like the Netherlands or working for the United Nations is that people trust you because you don't have a, a hidden agenda. And so I think it's very important you come to the conflict with that. We're not there to further our own cause. We're really here to help. And I think that's an important element that gives you a, a lot of legitimacy. And then you have to point parties to their responsibilities. You have to basically point out, uh, do you want suffering to continue? Do you want to seize this opportunity? And sometimes you do that behind closed doors. And sometimes you have to send a signal, uh, fortunately, uh, most uh, helpfully, of course, when you do that together. I think it's incredibly important to be on the same song sheet in a situation like that. When, when people go it alone, uh, that won't help the situation. So uh, whether in Sudan or in Mali, where, where of course I was working on, on implementing the peace accord, it was incredibly important to keep everybody posted and ask, are we still on the same song sheet? Is this the message we're going to give to the parties? Um, and to inform everybody and based on that information to, to coordinate. Uh, so, so that basically is is uh, the best way forward. So, one thing that happens in these situations is that, of course, the the governments or the representatives of the different parties are, of course, very skillful in uh, understanding each other. Partly because they they deal with opaque environments where they have to constantly think where the adversary, when they are at that stage of being adversarial, what they will do. But they also apply the same sense to the donors. They will know exactly, you know, where where does an opportunity to maybe use one against the other, and and, and so on. Um, how did you navigate those situations, or or do you just mention you know, to be on the same page? Um, do you have a meeting with the, with the, the everyone? Did you say okay, this here we need to stop. We have to do something else. Well, for instance, in the case of Sudan, we had uh, the the Friends of Sudan group, which was very informal and which included uh, the the most important countries in, involved, uh, and we basically kept in touch with each other. We had regular meetings, regular calls. Nobody would do something without informing the others. 
And I think that was extremely helpful to prevent any surprises and also to improve your information base. And in the end, that's also to the advantage of the parties involved in the conflict, because uh, they don't want somebody on Monday coming to tell them you have to go left and on Tuesday somebody to tell them you have to go right. Uh, they want a consistent uh, message. Um, and in the case of Mali, we had several ways of doing that. Uh, we worked very closely with uh, Algeria, which was uh, uh, chair of the follow-up committee of the peace accord. Um, I worked very closely with the multilateral organizations, uh, the ECOWAS, uh, the African Union, uh, um, and also the EU. Uh, we worked, of course, with the P5, who are uh, always very interested in, and, and yeah, who we need to keep on board. I mean, they also have to approve our, our, our budget every year. Uh, so, um, but also they are partners that can really make a difference. If, if we have shared messages, when the P5 uh, say something, uh, countries listen. So in all those, all those groups, you basically need it uh, to keep informed. And then, of course, the neighboring countries. In, in, in the case of both, uh, uh, both Mali and Sudan, the neighboring countries are incredibly important. IGAD in the case of uh, Sudan and um, yeah, ECOWAS countries in the case of, of Mali. Uh, you have seen that also recently uh, when, when there was a coup attempt in Mali or a coup um, that ECOWAS actually set uh, the agenda. Basically, these are the criteria uh, for us to be able to deal with you again. So I think it's incredibly important to keep those partners on uh, on your side as well. Uh, and once you do that, yeah, then life becomes a little more predictable and a little easier. So just returning briefly to uh, to South Sudan before we move on. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, of course, uh, last year, uh, there was a national unity government formed between Salva Kiir and Riyak Machar after seven additional years of, of infighting and, and civil war. And now, as you said, there is another opportunity at a, a different future for, for South Sudan. What would be your priorities, your advice, the things that you would want to look out for um, in the next year, coming few years um, of uh, for South Sudan. Well, this is uh, this feels very personal for me. Uh, like I said, I was at the independence ceremony. There were tens of thousands of people. Uh, Secretary General Ban Ki Moon was there. Uh, ministers, uh, Sudan was represented, uh, and so we need to. Uh, that was a day of a dream, and we need to realize help South Sudan realize that dream. Uh, and I think the first element that is incredibly important is to restore trust. Uh, the, the, the authorities basically have to show that there is trust, that there will be peace. Because that's also important since uh, one, of the, uh, one of the elements of hope in 2011 was the return of the, the diaspora. A lot of people who came back to help the country, a lot of those have left uh, since then because of the conflict. So that trust needs to be restored. I think also there's a there's a huge economic challenge. Uh, of course, uh, in spite of the natural resources, there's uh, there's poverty. There's a lack of diversification of the economy, even though uh, South Sudan has quite some economic potential. So I think that's extremely uh, important, and that needs to be fostered by uh, looking at uh, decentralization, decentralized capacity. And then finally, an element uh, also here, uh, reforming the security sector, bringing everybody together under the same flag and uh, yeah, basically making uh, the security sector a sector that, that uh, uh, protects uh, the population. 
I think those are some of the elements that will be uh, that will be very important over the coming time. And uh, yeah, I wish the country well. I, I hope for the best and uh, the international community stands ready again to assist. So you said a keyword and I actually have um, a question that's applicable, not just to fragile countries, to all, all countries around the world, even here where most of us are sitting in Washington today and, and it's a problem here as well. How do we build trust? What are your views and thoughts on it? And I know it's not, a, it's not an easy question. Yeah, I think it. it uh, oh, that's a difficult question. But I, I think it depends very much on on the circumstances. One thing that is uh, incredibly important um, is um, that on the one hand, when you have a peace process, you need to bring the men with guns together because uh, they they need to stop firing the guns. But on the other hand, if you're not inclusive from the start it's going to be very hard to be inclusive afterwards. And uh, just a case in point from, from Mali, I worked very hard to get women included in, in the follow-up of the peace process. But since they had not really been included in the negotiations of the peace accord, it took a long time uh, to, to basically have that uh, increase in representation. And it's not just symbolic, it's also a question of bringing the right themes to the table. Um, and so, so I think... Um, uh, in order to build trust, uh, yes, you need to look at the, the leaders who make a difference, uh, but you also need to realize that uh, those were uh, entrepreneurs in conflict and we need entrepreneurs in peace. And that means you also need to include civil society, you need to include women, you need to include youth. Um, and I think sometimes we say that, but we don't do that. So it's something that we, we need to place front and center because in the end that will help create uh, the trust needed to move forward. So you just said something that you need entrepreneurs in peace. And to go a bit further, that would mean you need entrepreneurs in all institutions that deal with peace, whether it's an NGO or a very large international organization that generally um, has to be more top-down in order to function. How then do you bring entrepreneurial ideas in these particular settings, uh, especially drawing from your experience? I mean, you've worked in so many, from the OECD DAC, from the Dutch government to the UN and, and beyond. Um, how do you do that in your view? Yeah, well, I think one thing we need very much is to keep an eye on, uh, on what we call localization. Uh, and and it's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a factor in humanitarian assistance. It's, it's a factor in peacekeeping. Uh, basically uh, listening very much to the voices on the ground. Um, I remember when I was in Bamako that journalists would come and ask me, is this uh, is the Sahel like Afghanistan? And I said, no, it isn't. Go talk to people. Go ask them. Uh, uh, and, and I think that's incredibly important because often it is about local grievances more than about belonging to some international terrorist network. Um, and those networks don't help. Uh, so let, let me let me get that very clear. Uh, but I, I do think that um, listening more to local partners, involving them uh, is an incredibly important agenda that can help make a difference and that can help us learn. When we worked in, uh, I was responsible for our reconstruction, uh, the reconstruction side of our efforts in southern Afghanistan. And there um, we made a point of asking uh, an Afghan and Joe to tell us how we were doing. 
uh, it's it's like yeah, and there are efforts like the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Mali who have the the Mali Metro where they're asking the population, how is the international community helping you? And and I think those are very important elements to basically tell us what people are feeling, what their major preoccupations are. Uh, and so I think that's extremely important to to basically uh, have a realistic sense of uh, what the real obstacles are and what the issues are that you have to focus on. So just building on that, then once you have that data, once you have those insights in your country programs, in your your you know your country management units, how do you get them to move up the the organizational structure? Because there, there will be inherently some resistance within large bureaucratic structures to to implementing new ideas that that maybe do not fit within the uh, the models and molds that that have been used for a long time. So, in your experience, how do you get those ideas to really penetrate from from the bottom up and 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 gain support uh, so that they don't just you know kind of uh, get stuck on that country level? Well, I think the most important element in uh, all of this is uh, is basically the assessment of risk, and um, it's it's risk aversion or or fear of risk that basically keeps uh, organizations keeps uh, institutions from from getting involved. Like uh, we 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 can't put our people at risk, which is a very uh, yeah a very valid point. But also we can't put our resources at risk. And uh, <clears throat> I think uh, there the element is to be very realistic on, on that and to show what is possible and what is not possible. And in most circumstances, there are ways of uh, managing risk. Um, and I think in that sense, for instance, when I look at the World Bank, we've made so much progress. If you look at the presence of, of, the, of the bank at the moment, nearly 50% of people in the field uh, more people present in conflict-affected countries, that really makes a difference because that means that staff are not just focused on what does Washington think, but they're also, also focused on what does the UN think, what does the Netherlands think, what do local parties think. So I think the risk issue is, is, is incredibly important and difficult. I myself had to take decisions in Mali about risk. Are we going to uh, basically uh, hide behind a wall in a, in a camp or are we going to sit in a certain town? Those are difficult decisions because you realize you're putting uh, people at risk. Uh, but it's a question of, of showing the hierarchy, as you say. Uh, there are ways of doing this. There are modalities by which we can basically uh, act. And that, again, is, is a question of, uh, to some extent, of localization, working with local partners who uh, often have an easier time being present than, than internationals. Uh, so I think also in that sense, that is an important part of the effort. So let's let's stay in Mali for a while and uh, and explore your your experience as the deputy special representative of the Secretary General. What did your everyday life look like in Mali in that role? Um, you know, as you say, men, making those tough decisions, uh, bringing partners together. What was what was that experience for you? Well, first of all, there was no normal day, um, so I think that's the first conclusion. <clears throat> but I, uh, yeah, I think it, it was um, basically uh, Mali uh, invited this mission, this UN mission. Um, it's a big mission. It's fifteen thousand uh, people, mostly military and police, but it's civilian-led. 
led by uh, my uh, my then boss, Mr. Anadif, who's now the representative of the Secretary General for West Africa. Uh, and I was the deputy in that mission. And um, yeah, the most important role I had was basically uh, pushing for the inclusive implementation of the peace process. So keeping parties together, keeping them at peace, trying to make the tent bigger, include more uh, parties, more people, also the women and youth and civil society that I was talking about, looking sometimes also for local solutions to conflict, empowering our staff who, uh, who had a difficult time on the ground, so you had to make sure that they had everything possible. Uh, but the, the work also involves uh, a lot of conversations with New York on how can we make the mission better, what kind of military capabilities do we need, Lots of engagement with uh, with the countries from the region, the P5, what I just mentioned, but also civil society, armed groups, the press. Uh, so it's it's quite a quite a, a varied and interesting uh, experience. So um, it's interesting you mentioned the P5 a couple of times, and I I'm wondering if you can elaborate or share any views on the following um, idea. So. Assumption number one is peace building, peacekeeping has never been easy. Uh, it's never been an easy job. You just said it's never had been a you know, normal day and so on. What some um, views, what some current views say is because of the different geopolitics in the world, because of the, the growing tensions, there are less and less of an agreement within the P5 on what's important. And this leads to um, peacekeeping missions um, and peacebuilding efforts being somewhat uh, slowed down or maybe um, hampered by this. Conversely, if we think of the original assumption, um, it's never been easy. So has it really been that different? And, and what, what is your view on this, on, on this um, um, uh, idea? I mean, do you, do you agree with it? Do you think it's actually, I don't, you know, 2008 Sudan or whenever you were, you were working on the, on the CPIA, I mean, was it easier? Well, I'm not, sh I'm not sure, but um, I think there is a sense that um, um, on, I think peace, peace operations are crucial. Um, but there's also a sense of a wasted opportunity. What I just said, the billion dollars that you could spend on something else. When are we, uh, when, when will we be, be able to leave? A question that people ask about MONUSCO or maybe also about MINUSMA. And so um, there's an impatience there. And the impatience is important because the impatience helps you look for what does it take for us to basically be able to leave. But I think overall, the good news during my stay was that uh, actually the P5 were quite supportive uh, and they may have been, had disagreements on other things, but they were fairly united on this. There may have been a bit of a difference that some wanted the budget to go up a little, the budget to go down. But overall, uh, I felt support and we also helped build that support. I was invited every every six months to come to New York. Uh, my, my, my boss also went regularly to New York. We spoke to PVI representatives and made the case uh, and heard from them what they thought were uh, avenues that we should explore. Uh, also, the, the council visited Mali uh, three times during my uh, presence there. Uh, the secretary general visited. So those are all kinds of visits that are incredibly important. Uh, to, to basically foster the support, but also the comprehension. Are we still working on the same project? Are we still on the same song sheet? Um, but I, yeah, there is a sense that, of course, uh, there's a built-in impatience, a built-in impatience to basically say, uh, when will uh, the job be done? And that is, uh, to, uh, to a large extent, a healthy impatience.
Oh yes, so 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 yes, we were talking about the P five and uh, you know how has it been easy and all that, and um, you were you were talking about building the support to the B, to the P five, and it's basically this iterative process and not just taking for granted what whatever happens, you know, and so on. Um, so I, I had a follow up to that, but maybe we can just um, I can ask it now or okay. So um, so building on on what you just um, said. Um, what do you think are those things about a peacekeeping mission that everyone should know about? I mean, uh, I'm thinking just also the, the more specialized um, sort of group of people who are interested in, in this topic, but generally, uh, what are those, you know, what do you think there are three or four issues or tasks that a peacekeeping mission can do that, you know, counterinsurgency mission cannot do, uh, outright, uh, you know, bilateral support cannot, which makes peacekeeping missions completely, uh, you know, essential. And you can give us examples based on your Mali um, experience. Well, maybe you have, you mentioned some of the points. I think the first uh, point that is important to mention is that uh, peacekeeping missions are civilian-led. We're, we're focused on the blue helmets, we're focused on the military, but it's very much a political instrument. You're basically, a peacekeeping mission is buying the party's time to uh, solve their differences. But it's, it, it says uh, we can take time getting there, but you need to go in the right direction. Uh, so it's very important to stress the political side of the peacekeeping mission. Uh, so all elements are important. And secondly, it's important to stress that the, the peacekeeping mission also tries to connect to efforts to create peace dividend. Uh, it normally doesn't do much of that itself because that's not its role. Although we did it in some areas of Mali where there was difficulty for uh, UN agencies to work. Uh, but basically linking to the UN country team, linking to others is incredibly important. I had regular meetings with the humanitarian and development community to basically talk about access issues. How can we help you? So I think that's extremely important. So that's the second element. The third element, um, I think there's a lot of confusion sometimes about... Um, robust peacekeeping, like you said, counterterrorism. Um, in, in Mali, at least, we were not a counterterrorism operation. We were a peacekeeping operation. That doesn't mean that um, a, a peacekeeping mission shouldn't be robust. How can you protect civilians if you can't protect yourself? So uh, we did stress, and it was also stressed in the mandate, we want a robust peacekeeping mission but it's not your role to basically go chase terrorists. It's your role to protect the population and to make uh, the peace process possible. So I think that was, uh, that was incredibly uh, important. And the last element perhaps that is often misunderstood is, is neutrality in the sense that, yes, uh, there is, uh, that, that is a very important element, but many of the operations we have now are not the old kind where you have two parties and the UN needs to be in the middle to stop them from, uh, from being violent towards each other. It's, a, uh, it's basically a situation like in Mali where you have a peace accord and the peace camp is actually quite big. It has 90%, 95% of the actors. But there are some who are not in the peace process and who cannot be enticed to come into the peace process. And so um, it, it's not that the um, UN can be uh, then even-handed between the terrorists and those who are in the peace camp. So that's a very difficult uh, uh, situation, of course. But the bank, uh, the, the, the UN then, of course, is on the side of the peace process. 
So kind of drilling into to to this idea of, of violent extremism that is so so present uh, and was really you know as we know one of the driving forces of at least the origin of the conflict in Sahel and it's still a driving force but but where the conflict has has become so much more communalized in the past uh, few years from your point of view in your role in Minusma how did you think about balancing humanitarian and security and development interventions in a context where you have such a an unpredictable and multifaceted threat to deal with and on top of that the mission not specifically being an anti-terrorist mission but a, but a peacekeeping mission no that's extremely difficult uh, i think there's um uh, basically you are very much there to be in touch with the population and uh, when you're being attacked yourself there's a huge risk that you become bunkerized and that you lose uh, the contact with the population so i think one of the challenges we had is to keep on reaching out and i think we we did uh, to basically make sure that that uh, people realize uh, you are basically working for their protection and uh, you're basically there also to, to help settle conflicts. What happened in Mali is that basically the UN mission was sent to, to deal uh, with the conflict that led to uh, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the, operation, uh, the French operation, which saved Mali's integrity. And then uh, we followed up with that in, in collaboration with ECOWAS and, and the African Union. And uh, it was uh, it was incredibly important to to basically uh, uh, yeah try to get speed into to the peace process, and that of course has been very difficult because there was distrust. While uh, that conflict was being addressed, which basically had to deal with the north of the country, um, there was of course a crisis building in the south, a crisis that we basically started discussing with the authorities. We need to handle uh, this situation. And that, of course, uh, that conflict has now become uh, more violent uh, while we're still implementing uh, the peace accord. And so it's incredibly important to make progress on, 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 uh, on, on the peace accord in order to be able to deal with all the other challenges that, uh, that Mali is facing. No, definitely. And, and within that context, then, um, as, as part of the United Nations, was or, or how did the UN think about the idea, the concept of fragility within this context? Or, or it, I can imagine a situation where, you know, the fish in the water doesn't know what water is or doesn't think about the water. So when you're in a fragile context, you have the, the fragility is so multifaceted that you don't think of it as a coherent concept. Perhaps this is just thinking out loud here. So, how did the 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 mission and you who worked for it think about the concept of fragility as as a as a as a concept, if at all, during that time in Mali? Well, it basically it's bringing to bear uh, and suggesting to the parties, uh, stressing with the parties to need to bring to bear some of these general principles we were talking about. Uh, and that's basically making sure that every citizen in Mali has the feeling that they have uh, the government on their side, the security forces on their side, that they have access to services, that they have access to opportunity. And uh, of course, Mali being uh, a very poor country <coughs> with uh, yeah, institutions that are uh, not always strong, 
and uh, needs to build on, on decentralization, delegating. Uh, and, and part of the peace process was also uh, what we helped with was to create interim authorities which combined uh, the government, armed groups, civil society to basically take control, uh, trying to focus more resources on the north and now also on the center. Uh, so, so I think those are uh, important elements. Also, the in terms of the security sector, to to build uh, the concept of of local policing, uh, where basically uh, the, the security services are a lot closer to the population. Also, in terms of composition of the force, I think those are all elements that are incredibly important and elements that we pushed within uh, within the peace process. So, you just mentioned um, local policing and the security sector. And this year, I mean, uh, it's interesting because we keep coming back uh, to, to this issue, which is at the center of all these these uh, these conflicts. Ten years ago, the WDR 2011 spoke specifically about security sector financing, about public financial management of police, defense, um, courts. Um, and early in the in the conversation, you mentioned that you have to start from the assumption that these conflicts can be solved. So, if we are to link the two, you know, how has this agenda evolved? And what would you say to a perspective that said, "Well, it's been ten years since at least formally we've known that far longer, but at least formally a, a major institution or the international community at large said this is important," and yet we still. Um, struggle with the same same sort of uh, challenges to make security forces effective and to work for the population rather than against them sometimes in these contexts. So what keeps you optimistic about this? Or do we have a choice? No, I, I, think, I think what makes me optimistic is that there's a lot more focus uh, from various institutions on these issues. Uh, so, so we do have a lot more experience. And if you look at the World Bank, I think... Um, uh, Ten years ago, uh, some of the activities in this area were more uh, nice pilots, early early uh, ideas, uh, and now it's more uh, ingrained. It's more part and parcel of this is what we need to look at. Uh, if you also look at the UN, uh, the Department of, of, of uh, uh, peace, uh, political and peace operations. There also the the the, the Rolsey section is is uh, looking into. Uh, security sector reform. Um, several bilaterals have now had more experience uh, with it. So in that sense, um, I think there's, uh, there's more awareness that this is important. Um, what we still need to emphasize as well is, is the link to justice, uh, because I think that is often forgotten. Uh, you, you need that to be part and parcel of the approach. And we, whenever people ask us, why do you have a justice and correction section in your peacekeeping operation, I had to explain, well, that's a very important part of the solution. If people have more access to justice, it, it will make uh, life uh, a lot better for people all over, uh, all over the country. So, so I think that's, there are always new frontiers. There are always things we need to, to work on. But I do think there's now much more awareness uh, than uh, there used to be before. And I think it's also easier to discuss these kinds of issues. So I want to actually take us back to, to a theme that you've been mentioning throughout this conversation, and that is coordination, whether you're coordinating or keeping in close contact with the country government or your partners, whether they're bilateral or other international organizations or humanitarians. Um, 
how do you uh, think about maximizing this, these types of partnerships and cooperation when different partners have different risk profiles? Um, my, I have a background as an economist when I'm thinking what I studied. Um, and I'm thinking right now that there's organizations that are important, such as, let's say, the IMF, that might not be as present on the ground as others. And there's different... The reality is there's different risk profiles, there's different mandates, and even different budget cycles, if you're thinking about it. So how do we do a better job at aligning um, the risk profiles, the, the the internal mechanics, so that we can deliver on the ground for the population, because that's ultimately the target? Yeah, well, I, think, uh, I think asking the question is answering it to a certain extent. We have to, we have to keep on working on it. Um, I, I do think the potential now is bigger than before. If you now look at uh, the World Bank is decentralizing its last country director this summer. Uh, and that basically means all the country directors are now in country. Um, and uh, also with, with about 50% of, of World Bank staff now in the field, that means there's enhanced uh, opportunities for coordination. And of course, the UN agencies, uh, UNHCR, 95% in the field, UNDP, uh, sort of similar so there already is a large presence on the ground. So I think it's incredibly important to work uh, on, on that basis uh, together. And also it's very important to have a common agenda. And uh, I think the sustainable development goals have to be core of that agenda. So, so there is, uh, I think there's more opportunity than there, there used to be. Um, and I think the good news about the agenda on fragility is basically that we're saying uh, let's take uh, the country's own ownership and own strategy very seriously. We can contribute to it, but this is the strategy that we all contribute to. So we have to, uh, yeah, we have to keep on working on that. And I think especially now in, in a time of uh, post-COVID, uh, although some countries are not post-COVID yet, they're still in dealing with the pandemic, but we have to come together even more because the, the resources will have to do even more. It's not just the quantity of resources, but the quality. How are we going to make a difference? So, so it makes uh, until 2030, we have to embrace each other even more and uh, work together. So, in that in that spirit, then, um, a lot of the 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 themes we've been discussing go back between security, development, humanitarian, security, development, humanitarian, and one interesting aspect I thought um, was. The fact that for development and for um, humanitarian work, there tends to be more or less a certain sense of international agreement on principles of effectiveness of, of, of support. I'm thinking specifically here, for example, about OECD principles for, for development effectiveness. In your view, what would be some of those principles that could be applied to, to security assistance um, in, in general uh, for, for the way bilateral actors fund and and support the security sector in fragile states? Well, there has been some work on that in, in, in the OECD. I think it links also to, to the new deal for fragile states that we agreed in Busan in 2011. But I think the most important element is basically uh, uh, dealing with uh, yeah, enhancing the, the civilian oversight of the security sector. Uh, and also the issues of, of transparency and, and good governance. I think those are the issues that are the most important. Um, and uh, having some coordination of support efforts, basically uh, making sure that these efforts are synergetic or at least deconflicting them 
um, I think those are the very important elements. So, so the element basically of civilian oversight, of uh, budget transparency and partnership. Uh, I, I, my, my sense is those would be the elements that would really help. So kind of staying on this idea of coordination, of collaboration, alignment, the Delivering as One report, which you played a key role in, in developing, was published 15 years ago this year. It was uh, convoked by Kofi Annan, whom actually I once performed in front of in a concert in Stockholm. Um, but how has this Delivering as One report helped reform the UN and and what have been the biggest challenges and, and the biggest wins for, on the one hand, countries, but also for the end beneficiaries of the UN missions, as well as for the people who sit between the, the, the big organization and the end beneficiaries of whom you were one in, in Mali? Yeah, I think uh, I still feel I'm very proud of the, the work we did in 2006, because I think we gave a very important signal uh, that the UN can, uh, the sum can be bigger than, than the parts, let's put it that way. Uh, we gave some signals in terms of strengthening the position of the resident coordinator. I myself was strongly involved in uh, in uh, the proposal to merge four entities to create UN Women uh, because we felt that we needed a more visible organization that uh, that addressed uh, gender uh, equality. I'm very proud that that basically happened. We also looked at the time at, uh, at the gap between uh, humanitarian and, and development. Uh, so, so there were several efforts made that I think were a good basis, but the the um, the process has continued. I mean, the, the current Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General, in particular, of course, have continued uh, to to work on this, and they created a, a, a new resident coordinator system uh, that will also contribute to to a stronger coordination. Um, what I've seen in practice myself. Uh, is actually more collaboration than I've ever seen before. Um, so I saw, for instance, joint visits by heads of UN agencies. There's a great um, regional project between uh, the, the World Bank, UNFPA and UN Women, the Sahel Women's Empowerment and Demographic Dividend Project uh, that I, I really uh, think is, is a very welcome uh, effort. And, and that's the kind of cooperation uh, we, we need. Also, if you look at uh, how, uh, yeah, how, how Bank and, and uh, UN have worked together in Yemen, in, in South Sudan, in Afghanistan, I think those are all efforts that show uh, that, that there's been a lot of progress, both within the UN system, but also in terms of reaching out to, uh, to other uh, development partners. But we can always do better and we can always uh, create more, uh, more synergy. Um, and I think the, the challenge remains for many actors to, to be present because, of course, in many situations, it's not that easy. And the good thing about the UN, of course, is that the UN is often uh, among the last to be present, let's put it that way, um, or the first to, to, to be there when it's, when it's truly needed and when it's not easy. And I think in particular, the colleagues from uh, the World Food Program, from UNHCR, uh, from uh, UNICEF, uh, uh, and others, they deserve a lot of credit for that. So building on that, um, what, what do you think the lessons that, that were developed as, as the delivering as one, how could other, uh, for example, bilateral 
donors and and development partners um such as you know my native sweden or 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 the netherlands uh, perhaps adopt some of those uh basic principles in order to to improve coordination uh, i'm thinking both in terms of 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 coordinating aid money but also in terms of coordinating presence and uh, and and operations uh ones on the ground yeah i think the answer is teaming up um and i i think there are some good um uh platforms for that. I mean, the one thing you should prevent is, for instance, also good work now, Team Europe. Uh, so the European Commission promoting that uh, the European Commission programs work more together with the bilateral programs of EU countries. And that is, uh, I think that's a very good initiative and that offers more uh, opportunity, opportunities for linking. But one of the things we warned of in 2006 was don't just focus on the internal coordination. The internal coordination is a means to an end. It's a means to going outward and and talking to other partners, and so that is. And in the end, it's all about supporting the country. So I still think at the core is basically we're trying to support the country to implement uh, its goals. We were involved in in Mali together with UN Women in uh, in helping Mali produce its 1325 action plan. So uh, its plan for women, peace, and security. And once that plan was there, we could tell donors, let's not just do individual efforts, but let's try and make this plan possible, because this is the plan of the government, the plan that the government had um, consulted with civil society. The secretary general of the ministry that basically made this plan was a former UNICEF staff. So he had good connections to the UN system. And that basically produced uh, uh, yeah, a good synergy uh, to to work together to implement uh, the country's own priorities. So I think that's a good example of the way it should be to unite around these uh, these uh, priorities. And then, of course, in 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 situations of fragility, there's always scope to help certain uh, elements of civil society to do good for the population, uh, to to work with women's groups, to work with certain communities, uh, and that's also where differences can be made. But I think part of the agenda of looking at fragility is also to look at the government. The government as an instrument of change, as an instrument of uh, social services delivery, uh, as an instrument eventually of uh, protection for the population. So so turning it on its head then, uh, there has been at least one person on this podcast who has said, actually, cooperation is good, but I don't think it adds that much more. Maybe let's not focus on cooperation anymore right now and just focus on what we're what we're here to do. What would you say to those who feel like perhaps we invest too much time, too much effort, too much of the scarce resources that are allocated to development into cooperation efforts uh, and, and and lose out on the gains that, that we might we might see? Yeah well I think in, in especially in the context of, uh, of countries that are conflict affected, that have capacity issues, that have weak institutions. It, I come back to the need to sing from the same song sheet, to basically be on the same page. Um, and I think that's extremely important because um, authorities in these countries have limited capacity. And if they get uh, 10 donor missions to, to visit, and uh, they all have different wishes and they all want different trust funds and modalities and this and that. It, it, it is a drain on the capacity. 
Um, and I'm not saying ganging up uh, to, to basically push a certain agenda, but I'm saying that if you want to have good cooperation uh, with uh, the authorities and if you want to make a difference, having uh, the same signals makes, uh, makes sense. Now, I would agree with anybody who says that cooperation and partnerships are not aims in themselves. Uh, it's about reaching development goals. And that's where a certain amount of cooperation can help. Um, I've seen in, in, in several countries that basically uh, some people come to the coordination, information, uh, coordination meetings to get information instead of coordination. Well, that's fine. And then at least their efforts are informed by the fact that they have seen what others are doing. So I think there's different degrees that you can have depending on the circumstances, depending on the potential of a partner to basically work in partnership with others. But uh, I can't see anything detrimental to uh, sitting together and exchanging on what the priorities are, because I think in the end, when we look at it, we will agree on uh, most of the priorities. It's just that some uh, partners will have uh, more capabilities in certain areas and others will have in other areas. Uh, so, so at least the sense of we are exchanging information uh, we are working towards common goals. I think that is extremely important and helpful uh, to countries that, um, that have a, a lack of capacity and that need help in that regard. So I have a question about um, the rest of us. Uh, you know, we always think about the West and the rest. Um, now I'm going to call the rest those of us, let's say, considered non-fragile. I'm really curious because you have, we looked at coordination, we looked at cooperation in fragile states, but this past year, COVID was an exercise in learning how to cooperate and coordinate at a global level, especially among us countries in the West that um, we're not used to see our own fragilities. We're not used to see the forces pulling apart at our own domestic systems or regional systems. I'm, I'm looking at Europe, I'm looking at the U.S., what can we learn from, in terms of understanding the forces of fragility? Because ultimately, fragility is not one thing, and it's never going to go away. There are forces um, constantly tugging at the various human and natural systems that we have. Coming back to the West, what can we learn um, from how we are addressing fragility, or we're not addressing it sometimes, in countries that we call fragile? What lessons that we would have never thought about should we now start thinking about given our experience over the last year? And I know it's a, it's a fuzzy question, but it's something that's been on my mind in terms of we kind of think about, okay, what can they learn from us? What can we learn from them and their experience? Yeah, I, I find that very tough um, because I think the, the, com the concept of fragility to me is very much focused on certain situations. And to sort of generalize it is to trivialize it. So, so my, my sense is that I, I, yeah, I, I, have, uh, there, there, I have a limited offer uh, in terms of uh, wisdom in that regard. Um, what I would say, though, is that um, I think we all face, uh, all countries in the world face the challenge of inclusion. Uh, and basically inclusion in terms of information, inclusion of having a common story, inclusion of making sure that uh, women and youth, for instance, who are... Uh, uh, very much caught in, in, the, in the aftermath of COVID in terms of limitations, in terms of opportunities, 
that they are uh, given those opportunities. So, so my sense is that um, having an inclusive agenda uh, post-COVID will, will be very helpful. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm in Washington now, and I saw this morning uh, that the mayor and, and Dr. Fauci, uh, of course, the well-known expert in, in, on COVID and, and, and viruses, uh, together went into communities of D.C. to tell people about uh, the need to get vaccinated. Um, and I think those are the kinds of uh, stories that bring people together and that, that uh, lead to inclusion and, and lead to facing uh, these kinds of challenges uh, as much together as possible. So I actually had uh, another thought. For you, the def- definition of fragility seems to be more more focused um, and pertaining more to the fragile states. I, um, For myself, I've sort of taken on more of the definition that the OECD has about the combination of exposure to risk and insufficient coping capacity, um, which... I find to also be applicable a little bit in the West, given the past year. But I'm curious, throughout your career, how has your understanding of fragility evolved? How how is it different today than it used to be in the past? And maybe why? I think, um, well, it would be uh, wrong to say that it hasn't evolved. Uh, but it's it's very hard to see because uh, I'm a bit like the, the frog in the pan and you don't know that the, that the water is boiling. Uh, but... Um, Basically, what I think is important is that you realize it takes time. Um, and I think that's probably the most important element. But, on the, but the interesting thing is you can't leave it at that because you have to be patient and you have to be impatient at the same time. Because if it takes time but you start off in the wrong direction, you're never going to get to the destination. So, so the combination... I felt very strongly also when I worked on Afghanistan, when I worked on Sudan, when I worked on, on, um, on the Sahel, is that I felt a combination of, of patience and impatience. The need to be patient and the need to explain to others that there, a certain patience is needed, while on the other hand being very impatient and saying, well, we at least have to go into the right direction. I think that's probably uh, the major um, the major uh, lesson I've learned myself. And, and the secondly, um, I've seen evidence of uh, the need to include women and youth. Uh, I think it's extremely important, like I said earlier from the start, to, uh, to do that. Um, and the third element is to always assess, um, it, are third, certain things not happening because of political will or is it a question of capacity? And sometimes it's a combination of both. So I think that's also a very important element that I yeah, really take into consideration. So you, uh, you talk about time, you talk about inclusion, but there was it's a key uh, thing that you also mentioned, which is making sure that everybody moves in the right direction. Um, and, you know, when it has to do with countries like Afghanistan, the Sahel, South Sudan, the right direction is, is peace, is stability, is... A, an environment where the people of the country can live together. But we have these forces that, that, that want various different things and have various priorities. So on, I guess, a conceptual level, because there are so many differences between these various conflicts, how do you get them to move into enough of a coherent direction 
that you have a movement of the general process in the right direction? Yeah, I think that depends very much on the context. In in Mali, um, I mean, we uh, for us the the, the peace accord was uh, the guiding document, and the good thing about that uh, peace accord was, of course, that it addressed uh, all aspects. Uh, it addressed uh, the issue of uh, political solutions and the social contract. It addressed uh, the issue of security and making the security sector uh, relevant to people's protection. It addressed uh, justice issues, looking into human rights violations and how to address justice moving forward. And it addressed peace dividend. So we had, um, we had an agenda, basically. And then it's incredibly important to, um, to get people to rally around that agenda and to basically make that agenda successful so that the peace camp becomes bigger. Um, and, and so that's one element. So you need, what is the platform you're working on? Uh, and uh, of course, in, in the case of Afghanistan, that those were the, the Bonn Accords and in other situations, uh, you, you have other elements. And of course, the consensus was also reflected in, in the Security Council resolutions we had, uh, which also gave us uh, guidance and which helped <coughs> rally uh, people and institutions uh, around it. So I think those are important elements. And then based on those elements, you keep on have to rally everybody uh, around. You have to inform people. You have to take people seriously, get their inputs on uh, how to get there, how to get to the, the, the common destination. Um, and uh, don't forget people that need to be included. Uh, I think that's a really important element uh, because you want everybody to, to feel involved, to be part of that solution. So what you've said, in a way, points to the fact that the unit of analysis is extremely important. Sometimes it's, most oftentimes, we should never forget it's people. It's people who on, on, whose lives depend on, on our work. On the other hand, you have the platforms like the Bon Accords or the one you, you just mentioned. So I guess a uh, question would be, what, would you, what recommendations would you give uh, younger diplomats, let's say, who are starting out to work in fragile states? Uh, what do you think are the most important roles that a diplomat, especially in a fragile state, can play? I, th I think the, um, it may sound a little cliche, but I, I think it um, be very humble and uh, listen to the situation and, uh, and learn from, uh, from elders. Uh, I think those are very important elements. Talk to a lot of people, get a lot of views. Uh, I, in Mali, um, but also in other situations, I learned so much from talking to people and getting their views. And I didn't always agree or I didn't always think that their ideas were going to lead to, to peace, but it was important to hear them. Um, uh, so, so my sense is basically, uh, especially when you come uh, temporarily to a certain situation to, uh, to, to uh, yeah, address a situation with, open, with an open spirit, of course you come with an agenda. You want to make a difference. You want to help. Uh, you want to achieve the mandate that was given to you. Uh, but it's very important to be humble and to be uh, in listening mode. So then moving towards uh, the, the, the last few questions here um, and looking towards the future. So in 2008, you were part of, of developing the strategy for the, the Dutch government in terms of how to interact with fragile nations. You've done so much work on these countries since then. What would you say should be the key priorities in the work on fragility 
in the next decade to really both improve our collective ability to to mitigate the impacts of the fragility that is happening now, but also getting these countries out of the fragility trap and onto a, a, a route where we can reach the 2030 uh, Sustainable Development Goals? Well, my sense is that basically um, we talked about the fact that um, that uh, a lot of uh, conflict-affected countries uh, lack institutions or institutional strength. There's, there are big differences uh, in, in, in that. But I think a focus on that and learning lessons on how we can help countries uh, strengthening uh, their institutions and decentralization processes, which are often very difficult because they're perceived as the beginning of the end of the nation. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be the case. Uh, and so to basically uh, share examples, shares views that can, that can help in that regard. Um, I, think, I think secondly, uh, the social contract is of course very important. And that means uh, inclusion, inclusion of, of women and youth, inclusion of communities. Um, I think that's a very important element. And the third element is protection of civilians and, and the security sector that basically uh, promotes human security and that links up to justice. So I think those are elements that I, I think should be very much on our mind. And that's what we all should be helping countries with. Wonderful. Well, this has been an incredibly wide ranging, interesting um, and and, uh, and wonderful conversation. We've really gone from these founding principles of, of solidarity, a multilateral approach that can lift all boats and reaching the bottom billion, to thinking about how we can bridge the humanitarian security, justice and development sectors to not have any lost generations that are, that are left behind. Uh, we've talked about the importance of partnerships and really knowing what you don't know uh, and coming with humility into uh, into all con- contexts, but in particular contexts affected by fragility, conflict and violence, um, and really helping countries focusing on those binding constraints that keep them fragile. Um, we talked about how to get entrepreneurs in peace to get their ideas, not just to the, the ground level, but into organizations, and how that really is a function of finding innovative ways to manage risks within organizations. Um, we also talked about the importance of both patience, but also impatience when it comes to driving a peace process forward uh, and ensuring that within that, there is also a common direction where there is inclusion of women and youth and an understanding of if things are not happening, why aren't they happening? And then lastly, Cohen, you outlined three priorities for fragility, uh, combating fragility in the next decade, strengthening institutions, strengthening the social contracts and inclusion, and really protecting civilians and strengthening the security sector. Thank you so incredibly much for for joining us, Cohen, today. Uh, This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. The, the book will be in bookstores in uh, December. Wonderful. I'm just kidding. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And also thank you to our listeners for tuning in to F-World, the Fragility Podcast. We hope you've found our conversation interesting and inspirational. We sure did. Please subscribe where you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about F-World, please visit our website f-world.org and follow us on Twitter at F-World Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>